open our Bibles. Oh, Merrily. Good. That's nice. Okay, Luke chapter 9. Picking up where we left off last week as we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 9 starts with Jesus sending out the 12 disciples on kind of a short-term missions trip. Um, Later on, we'll see tonight, if we get to chapter 10, that he had 70 people that he sent out on a similar trip, but this time it was just sending the 12 out on so they can get some experience doing ministry and reaching out to people. And so it says he called them together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and, and to heal the sick. It's interesting that when he sent us to go into all the world, he said, all power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore... And, t- and disciple all nations, make disciples, baptizing them, and so on. So he gave them the power, and they were able to do the stuff. But he said to them, don't take anything for the journey, neither staffs, and that means a walking stick, not people that worked for them, <laughs> nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart, and Whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. When he sent them out, he didn't want them to pack a bunch of stuff. because, And a lot of it seems to have to do with the fact that, and, and we'll see it a little later when he talks to the 70, he wanted the people who were getting ministered to to support the people who were ministering to them. And so they deliberately went out in a way that they didn't have much. And then you could really tell whether somebody was into what the message was. And then he said, as was typical of Jews when they would leave a Gentile city, dust, you know, knock the dust off your shoes when you leave. You don't want anything from there. And so he kind of told them, uh, look, go out there, and if people will put you up and, and they want you to minister to them, then stay there and do the good work. If not, brush the dust off your foot and just move on out and go someplace that will listen. And I, I think it's, you know, there are some good lessons in there for us in that God doesn't call us to go force people to listen. He never he doesn't do that. Jesus didn't do that and didn't call his disciples to do it. It's not like you go tell them no matter what. Um, it was just like, hey, go offer the gospel. Uh, tell them about the good news. And if they don't want to hear it, that's okay. Don't waste your time banging your head against the wall in some place that doesn't care. Go somewhere where they do care. And this is a great principle that you know Jesus talked about the fields are white to harvest, and we're going to see that in the next chapter too. The idea is it just makes sense to go where it seems like you're getting somewhere. Now, if God specifically calls you somewhere that's difficult, you have to do what God tells you to do. And there are exceptional people who are called to very difficult tasks. But in general, find people who want to talk and share with them. Don't just continue to fight against people who really aren't interested. 
And then in the meantime, it says Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by Jesus, because now not only was he doing miracles, but his disciples were traveling, traveling around doing it as well. And Herod was kind of perplexed because people were saying that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and since he had had John's head cut off, that kind of concerned him. Of course, it's kind of stupid that he would think that Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated since they were just about the same age, but um, he apparently didn't know enough to know that. Uh, some people thought that he was the prophet Elijah, and some thought some other old prophet. And Herod said, verse 9, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Herod wanted an audience with Jesus. But we never see that he actually got it because apparently Jesus wasn't that interested in, in drumming up publicity. More times than not, you see Jesus telling people, look, just keep this on the down low. I'm not looking to publicize what I'm doing. And, and he, you know, Jesus would have told Larry King, no, I'm too busy to come on your show. And that's kind of the way he did things. And here, even with an opportunity with Herod, he was just like, you know, so he wants to see me, so what? You know, get in line. I've got work that the Father has called me to do, and I'm just going to do that. And that's so typical of Jesus. And next it says the apostles, when they had returned, after they went out and, and shared with people, they came back and they told him all that they had done. They were excited. They were like, man, it really went well. And just like whenever someone goes on a, out on a missions trip and they come back and tell the stories about how God used them, it excites everyone, it gets everyone pumped up, and, and, and it's encouragement to the people who went out and did it to go, yeah, it's, it's exciting, and sometimes you have to get home before you reflect back on it and realize what, what happened. But it says that Jesus took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Now, when you read this account in uh, Mark's gospel in chapter 6, um, he makes it clear that he's taking them away to a a deserted place so that they can rest a while. He basically had a retreat with them. Um, and it's the verse in Mark is one that's quoted often to talk about how nice it is to just go away and spend time with your loved ones and spend time with the Lord. The problem is in both accounts, as soon as they got there, the people got there and there was never a break. And that's so often just the way life is. But but they went there, and when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. <laughs> he had told them earlier, Hey, let's go away to a deserted place. Now they're saying, look, we're on retreat, and there's thousands of people here, and it's time for them to just go get a life. It's time for them to go to town somewhere and, and find a place to stay and get some food. And Jesus wasn't anxious to get rid of them, and he said to them, give them something to eat. And they said, what do we have? We have 
five loaves, which were just like little biscuits, and two small fish. And unless we go and buy food for all these people, we can't even afford that. So Jesus said, have them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and he made them all sit down, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. We're familiar with this story, just another testimony of that Jesus can do anything and that he can do something with a little bit. We know that... um, that the five loaves and two fishes actually belonged to a little kid who offered them and said, hey, you know, here, I have these. And that was all he needed, really. And, and for God to use us, if he can feed, you know, probably upwards of 12,000 people because the 5,000 were men and there were women and children there also, if he could feed them on five loaves and two fishes, then he's able to stretch what we have to get us by, and he's able to use us in a way that um, goes way beyond what our natural capabilities are. And so just another example of that Jesus doesn't need to have a lot to work with. And look in the mirror and you'll realize it's a good thing because he doesn't have a lot to work with when you look at us. Um, So 12 baskets were left over, amazing. And then you have, as they were... He was alone praying in verse 18. The disciples came and joined him. It doesn't say they were praying, but they were just kind of waiting for him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered and said, You know, John the Baptist is probably the leading vote getter right now. Some say Elijah, others say one of the old prophets has risen again. And he's, and by the way, this gives us a, an interesting clue that when Herod had the same kind of theories, where did he get those ideas? Jesus is pointing out there are people in the crowd who are saying this. And so another characteristic of a bad leader is when someone, you know, leads by listening to the to the polls and doing whatever they think will sell. Um, And that was apparently the kind of leader that Herod was. Um, But he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah, of God. Matthew uh, gives us a little longer account of this over in Matthew 16, and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and then the whole thing of, you know, I'm going to, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it, and all that happened at this time, but Luke cuts out the details and just gets right down to that statement. And, and then he says he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Which is interesting. You always wonder, why did Jesus not want to tell people um, the truth? Why didn't he fill them in? Why did he leave so much mystery in who he was? And often I think, you know, it would have been nice if Jesus had just put together a really good systematic theology where he outlined specifically the nature of the Trinity, where he talked about substitutionary atonement, where he laid out a prophetic uh, t- 
timetable whereby, okay, this is going to happen, and then this, and then this, and there's a rapture, and there's a tribulation, and there's a thousand-year millennium. Satan will be released for a short time. Then I'll wipe them all out. He'll be thrown in the bottomless pit, and then we'll be in heaven forever. And heaven's different than the, you know, the new Jerusalem, and there's going to be a temple in the millennium. There's not in heaven. And just, he could have untangled all this stuff. I mean, I think all the main questions, and then if he had dealt with a little bit of Calvinism, Arminianism stuff, I think in about 20 minutes, Jesus could have cleared up almost every controversy that's ever existed in the history of the church. Because he didn't, I'm assuming that something good happens when people don't know everything. And even we can learn a lot about ourselves and about each other when we have to deal with people who see things differently than we do, who maybe have a different perspective than we do. And so he seems to allow that to happen on purpose. And then in this case, too, it was going to get complicated. As he goes ahead and explains to them next, he says, look, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, that's a mouthful. It seemed to go right over the disciples' heads. But he was telling them, look, yeah, I am the Messiah, but it's not what you think. It's not what everyone else thinks. And the truth is, Jesus understood at this point that he was going to have to go and suffer and die and be resurrected from the dead. He had a clear understanding of that. And so fitting into that whole scenario is the idea that people would be confused, the religious leaders would turn on him, and so on. So it, I'm not saying that if everyone then had understood that he was the Messiah, that it would have messed up the time-space continuum and that he'd have to get in a DeLorean and go back and try to straighten it out. But Jesus had a sense of this is happening the way it's supposed to happen, and all of this is necessary. But so interesting that the disciples um, you know, didn't even get it that he explained to them, oh, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And you'll see in a minute what they were kind of thinking as he says those kinds of things. But then he said to them all, more to the crowd, verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, after he just said he's going to die, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus gives this principle that he repeats at other times, but he says, things are upside down with me, according to you and your orientation. If you try to gain your life, or the word there uh, that's translated life, or that's in the King James's translated soul, uh, is actually the word suke, your psyche, who you are, the immaterial part of you. You're trying to find yourself. He said, trying to find yourself 
will only cause you to lose it. But if you are willing to lose yourself, then you'll find life. Because again, as he was saying, the pathway to our life is his death. Later he makes it clear, and you may follow me in that way, but if you really want to go where I'm going, you have to deny yourself. Now, he isn't just saying that you don't matter or you're just going to waste your life or who you are doesn't matter. What he's saying is you don't know how to find yourself. You can try, but when you try to find yourself, you're just going to lose it that much more. And so don't focus so much on finding yourself. Actually, be willing to let go of who you are. Be willing to do anything. Be willing to die if that's what God wants to do in your life. And you're going to find yourself in a way that you never could have imagined otherwise. And this is such an important principle. It's the reason why people who are um, in some of the helping professions like psychology or psychiatry, and I and I appreciate, and, and many of them do a lot of good, and I'm not just knocking the profession as a whole, but the truth is when you find people who are really trying to, to analyze others, quite often they have a difficult time themselves. Often people go into those professions because they're trying to figure themselves out. And so they categorically often are some of the most unhappy people, often a huge amount of suicides among professional psychiatrists and psychologists, and that's not a knock on them. It's simply that the more you dig and the more you try to figure yourself out, you're just going to get more and more confused. It's going to become more difficult. That's not to say that there's no benefit that can come from understanding some things about yourself. I think there there's some validity to it, but ultimately what Jesus calls us to is just follow me. And when you do that, and you stop trying to find yourself all the time, then you'll be surprised. I, you, you will find me. Like people have said, you know, chasing after butterflies, you can chase after them for hours and never catch one. But if you just sit down really quietly, sometimes they'll just come and land on your shoulder. And that seems to be, be the way life is. People who are the most consumed with trying to find their life generally aren't the people who end up finding their life. Um, See, the thing is, we're stupid. (laughs) I mean, we don't know what we want, and we don't know what's best for us, and we don't have a good sense of even necessarily what's healthy for us. We're, We're messed up. The fall did that in Genesis 3. As a result, I can't trust my own judgment. So even if I have it figured out, then I find out, whoops, you know, I I didn't have it figured out. I remember a a little Peanuts cartoon one time where Charlie Brown said, I thought I discovered the secrets of life, but then there was a flag on the play. And that's so often what we discover is like, I I think it's starting to make sense. No, it's not. (laughs) And I... You know, I talk to people about this a lot because um, I'd say one of the biggest problems that Christians often have, non-Christians too, of course, is the idea that we think we know certain things. And so we come to God with all sorts of preconceived 
notions and conclusions and conditions. And so we go, and I, I deal with this every day of my life. People are like, I really want to know what God's will is, either this or this. And I go, well, what if it's something completely different than that? Like what? Well, how about what if he wants you to move to another state or another country? No, no, I, I won't do that. Well, what if, and, and you start coming up with all these obvious conditions. How about changing what you do for a living? No, I'm really, you know, I like this. And, and, and people come to God and they go, okay, God, my life's pretty good except for a couple little things. And if you can fix between these things, then I'm set. Really, all we want to do is for God to play our game, for God to come and be our little good luck charm with the life that we already have. And I have found, and by the way, this is true of anything creative, whether listening to God or anything else, the more you can suspend what you think you know and start from scratch, the more clarity you will end up finding. And to put him first, and it's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's like, look, just seek him. Don't tell him what you want him to do. Don't tell him, here's what I think, here's what I know, here's what, here are all the pieces I have to the puzzle. Now, if you just make a couple pieces to wedge in here, we'll be good. But the truth is, the more we can come to him and say, you know what, all bets are off. Maybe that's a bad metaphor. But, you know, God, you can do whatever you want to do. I am completely open. I'm stumped. And I am willing, if what you want is for me to die this week, then that's fine. I'm ready to go. I'm okay. Everything is on the table, God, for you to make arrangements. And it's amazing how many times when you begin to discover life, it's when you weren't trying to. When you do something that even you thought, oh, I got to do this, and it turns out to be a real blessing. And often, some of the greatest blessings in your life happen when you think you've lost everything, and there's some big tragedy that hits, and then you realize, I actually feel much better without all the stuff I had because I got to start over with God and, and just draw close to him because he was all I had. Like Corey Ten Boom said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples because of his death, and he knew that most of them would also end up dying. He's going to say, the smartest thing you can ever do is to be willing to die and to just give up on all the things that you thought you had figured out and instead just pour your life into your relationship with me. And that way you'll find your life without even really looking for it. Then you have the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, but I tell you truly, verse 27, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, this statement he makes every time before the Mount of Transfiguration in all the Gospels. So we know that this is what he's referring to. There are some guys who are going to see basically a coming attraction of the kingdom of God before you die. And so they went, it was about eight days after these saints, 
Peter, James, John, and Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And that must have been impressive to see Jesus like that. You know, it's interesting that um, and when we talk about our heavenly bodies, um, we consider Jesus, who after he came back and met with the disciples, he looked like a regular guy, and he was mistaken for the gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him, had a long conversation with him, didn't even know who he was. So on the one hand, we expect that, that heavenly bodies could be just pretty similar to these bodies, except perfect. Um, but on the other hand, we see Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 in this glowing, you know, voice like water, fire shooting out and everything. And so it would seem like he has this glorified presence that maybe they got a glimpse of here. But, and who knows, if we're going to be like him, as John said, now are we the sons of God. It hasn't yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Um, it may be that we're going to glow too. I'm just warning you so you don't freak out when you see me glowing white and glistening. And two men were there talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but in the Bible it says that we will know even as we are known. So it could be that when someone's in a heavenly body that you'll just know them. You'll, you won't need a name tag. You'll just, you know everyone just as well as you know everyone else. But they were just talking. Imagine the conversation Moses and Elijah could have had with uh, Jesus. And they appeared in glory, and they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, Jesus, are you really going to do it? You're going to go die? And as they were discussing it, Peter and those who with him were heavy with sleep. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like, you know, this is happening, and they thought they were dreaming. But they woke up. And they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him, um, as Moses and Elijah were about to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Duh. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter thought he was really complimenting Jesus. He said, you're like Moses and Elijah. Let's just build three little memorials for the three of you. We can even put you in the middle if you want. Moses and Elijah are here, your buddies. We want to remember this. I can't wait to tell my friends about it. They didn't get it. They, probably what they didn't get was, for, for one thing, that Jesus was going to go die. They still that hadn't sunk in. But secondly, they didn't understand that Jesus wasn't just like Moses and Elijah. They all shined in the same way but they're totally different and so a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of this cloud saying this is my beloved son hear him I said forget about Moses and Elijah this one the one that you've been living with the one you've been traveling with the one who is teaching you he is my beloved son you listen to him you don't need to hear what anybody else has to say. And frankly, Peter, you're there to listen. Just shut up. You don't need to make any suggestions about how you could make this Mount of Transfiguration a lot more special. 
And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet at that point. They're, okay, never mind. My lips are sealed. And they told no one in, in those days any of the things they had seen, probably because they figured nobody's going to believe it anyway. And uh, so they just kind of kept it to themselves. Later on, they obviously told people about it, but they still didn't understand it. Next, you have Jesus um, healing this boy, a multitude's following him, and a man comes out crying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he's my only child. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. He thought, yeah, my, my kid's demon-possessed, and your disciples are no help. I'm sure they loved hearing that. It's like when, you know, I remember whenever, when I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, if somebody got mad at you right away, they would go tell Chuck. That's kind of the way this was. It's like, so people would be mad. I would tell them my name was Romaine. And, you know, I figured so many people complained about Romaine, it wouldn't even matter. But, uh, but, um, you know, so they went and, you know, these people went and ratted out the disciples. And Jesus said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son to me. He's like, What's the deal? In the other Gospels, he says, You need some prayer and fasting in order to do this kind. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Just another one of these events that Luke scatters throughout his gospel of all these people whose lives were touched by Jesus. And now they were all amazed at the majesty of God. How many of us are really amazed at the majesty of God sometimes? I mean, we can talk about it, but it's so easy to just think of God as being, eh, you know, he's always there. You can take him for granted. When they saw what he did, they weren't amazed even at just Wow, that's a great trick. They were glorifying God and going, God's so good. Why? Because he did such a great miracle? More so than that, they were blessed because this kid got his life back and this dad got his son back. And so uh, while everyone marveled that all the things Jesus did, he said to the disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He goes, while you guys are enjoying all this, let this sink in. Think about this, okay? This is for real. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to fall into the hands of the enemies. Let this sink in. But they didn't understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They just figured, oh, You know, nobody wants to ask. That's that's typical when you have a group of people and everyone has the same questions, but no one wants to be the one to ask the question. And, you know, you don't want to ask a dumb question. The only thing dumber than asking a dumb question is to not ask a question when you don't know what what you know. Um, But they didn't ask. It's funny, all the questions they did ask, like next, then, right after that, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. I mean, he's telling them he's going to suffer and die. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. You're a faithless generation. I'm going to be 
betrayed and and then they're like oh i know you're talking about the kingdom where do i get to sit who can i be better than him can i you know and this was a topic of conversation among them on several occasions and jesus perceived the thought of their heart <laughs> they were arguing quietly they weren't going to do it in front of jesus of course they took a little child, Jesus did, and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. That great truth that he does things in an upside-down way, that he doesn't decide the value of people based on how much they can help us, but for him, he says, in order to get somewhere with me, you have to understand that you're not much. You need to, like a little child who will come and just be unashamed of being needy, that's how you come to God. You don't come and offer help. You don't come and think he's lucky to have you. You don't play one person off against another and decide who's valuable and who isn't. He said it's becoming like a child. And it's about receiving a child. When you receive a child, you're receiving me. When you receive me, you're receiving the Father. This is a good truth to remember for those of you who have the incredible privilege of, of taking care of children, working with them, or, or raising children. Don't ever take that for granted. That's such a privilege because Jesus says, if you do it to the least of these, you're doing it unto me. You will get closer to understanding the kingdom when you're playing with children than you will when you're with a bunch of adults in some high holy worship service. Have you ever noticed how people just change when they're with children? I mean, sometimes they can get pretty frustrated. I know it's not always easy to deal with little kids, especially some of you that have you know three under the age of five and things like that. But you watch almost anyone and when they get with children, they're laughing, they're talking baby talk, they're playing, they're using their imagination, they're exaggerating their feelings, they're, they're really kind, they're careful not to scare the kid. They do, it's, people are on their best behavior when they're playing with kids, and it's way closer to what heaven is going to be like. One time when I was doing Pastor's Perspective, a little kid called up and said, said, um, I was wondering, I asked my dad, and he said to call you, um, he, he said, are we all going to be adults when we're in heaven? And I said, I hope not. I said, I'm really hoping when we get to heaven, we'll all be kids. And I, and I really believe there's a lot of truth to that. And that's why Jesus locks onto it so much. So many of us ruin our lives by trying to find our life and then losing our soul losing who we really are. We try so hard, we, we ruin ourselves, we ruin our lives. And to live life selfishly, I mean, hey, if you don't have kids, that's fine, but there are plenty of other people who would love to have you watch their kids for a couple hours. And uh, I know that, um, like, Ava, definitely, um, <laughs> well, Tiffany, who led worship, her little girl, I'm sure you can borrow her for an hour. She's, she's so full of life. She's incredible. But, um, you know, to get in touch with what's just more real. I mean, kids have more faith than adults. 
um, they believe what, what they're told. And as long as the source of that information is Jesus, is something good, um, there's something really beautiful about that. And so Jesus is he's essentially saying, you know what, some of you guys are just too grown up. You're just too mature for your own good. You've taken yourself beyond the point of what's healthy. And as a result, here you're fighting about who's going to be greatest. When you ought to be playing. You ought to be enjoying blessing others. You ought to be selfless. And so that's kind of you know, what he lays out for them. Now at this point, John answered and changed the subject and said, uh, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. This is kind of a strange thing, because they saw somebody who was going around and delivering people from demons in the name of Jesus, but they didn't actually know who the guy was. And so they said, uh, you know, so we told them, you know, that uh, you can't do that because we have a copyright on the name of Jesus, and you know we'll we'll have to send you a cease and desist order because you know we've got the corner on this thing. Don't think you can do this. And Jesus said to him, "Don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side." What a beautiful truth! What an important thing to remember when it comes to different Christian groups, even. If somebody is doing something in the name of Jesus, don't tell them not to do it. If they're not asking you, you don't need to tell them every way in which they're wrong. You know, if somebody's not against Jesus, we should be glad that people aren't against them. And God uses some people who are really messed up, and it's a good thing, because he uses us. Um, I, I, this was a, an interesting thing. Yesterday, somebody had told me, oh, you should check out um, Glenn Beck on Fox News. And he did a one-hour show, and most of it was pretty good. Um, But he was trying to make a point about liberation theology. But in the process, he shared the entire gospel and explained what grace was. Now, Glenn Beck is a Mormon. And he said, I know some of you are going to be saying, oh, he's a Mormon and everything. But I'm like, there are millions of people watching this, and they are hearing Glenn Beck saying, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, and you will be saved only by grace, not by works. And if you put your faith in him, you'll have eternal salvation. And I'm like, I'm not a big Glenn Beck fan, but I'm going, that's good. That's amazing. I mean, more people just heard a Mormon share the gospel than will ever hear the gospel from me in my entire life. And I'm like, that's good. And I'm not going to go pick on the guy. Jesus didn't like, well, go get, make sure he's saying everything right. He's like, hey, if they're not against me, they're for me. Don't forbid them. Don't, don't worry about it. And I think we get way too much against others and telling them they can't do this or they can't do that. Um, God will sort those things out. It's not our job. Now, when it came to pass, the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly sent his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, now it's time. So they're heading from the Galilee. They're going south down toward Jerusalem. They always call Jerusalem up, but we would call it down on the maps the way we read them. But right in the middle of, of Israel, as you, know, as you probably know, is the area of Samaria. 
or what is today called the West Bank of the Jordan River. It's the, it's the area, in addition to the Gaza Strip, where the, the so-called Palestinians have their territory. So they're heading down there, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans, and they didn't receive him. The Samaritans didn't want him there because he was heading to Jerusalem. And verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? <laughs> These guys were pumped. And I, I don't think they quite got the whole sectarianism lesson previously, but he turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's suke, men's souls, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus is like, I didn't come to destroy people. Why are you so... They were acting like Jonah when he's sitting there on the hill hoping to see Nineveh melt down. It's like, come on. And then when God didn't destroy Nineveh, he was all mad. A lot of us almost feel that way. We just want God's judgment to be handed down. Be careful. If he starts handing down his judgment, you might be in the way, but that's not what he wants. Jesus told Nicodemus, the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So no, you don't need to call down fire from heaven. You don't need to get up there and preach fire and brimstone and scare people and and uh, you know threaten them and coerce them not necessary as always jesus just goes we'll just move on we'll go someplace else we'll talk to some people who will listen it's okay we don't need to call fire down on anybody that's silly disciples had a hard time learning that and then as they journeyed along somebody said to him lord i'll follow you wherever you go trying to sign up and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? I don't even have a place to live. And then and apparently that guy, oh, never mind. I didn't know you were homeless. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that was an expression that they would use. Let me go first bury my father. Father was probably perfectly healthy. It was like saying, I'll follow you, but let me wait till my dad gets old and dies, and, and then I'll come. Kind of like what Abraham did with his father. He went the opposite direction from what God told him to do, and as he was there headed north instead of west, he waited until his father died, and then he ended up going to the promised land. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the gospel, the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit or well-placed for the kingdom of God. <laughs> Some interesting and important principles here. Basically, following Jesus isn't for quitters. It's not an option it's not, oh, I'll follow you when I get a chance, and if I get mad, I won't, and if I, some situation changes, maybe I'll have to take some time off, and you know, then if things are looking good, and once I get all my bills paid and work off my student loans, then I'll, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. Jesus says, you know what, either do it now or don't even pretend to do it, because if you won't follow me now, you're always going to have an excuse. 
you're not going to do it. And in fact, you aren't even appropriate to go with me if you're a quitter. And so I'm sure that caused the disciples to go, so I guess I uh, can't get out of this gig. Interesting, in the end, after he died, they all went back to their old jobs until he came back and called them. Now in chapter 10, he called out 70 also, sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So they were going, but he said, you need to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth more laborers. It's still true today that the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty to do for the Lord. The laborers are what's few. And so we should pray that God will bring up more laborers and send them into the harvest. There's, there's never a place for just saying, no, there's enough. There's never enough. There are always, it's funny when churches like compete against each other i mean are there not enough lost people in our community that everyone could find a few to minister to it's 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 really silly the way people sometimes act like it's a zero-sum game and and only certain people get a chance to do it but um so he just told them pray that god will raise up people go your way behold i send you out as lambs among wolves (laughs) There's a lot of wolves out there. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, sandals, Greek, no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating, drinking, such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages to not go from house to house. Paul later quotes this to talk about the fact that pastors should be paid for doing the ministry that they do. He was quoting Jesus um, here. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they set before you. I hate that when I go to another country and I remember Jesus saying, eat what's set before you. I do all I eat crazy things out on missions trips, but I do always take packets of Del Taco salsa, which <laughs> makes virtually any weird food taste like a taco. Um, <laughs> So I'm technically okay. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he goes, go places and wherever doors open, somebody lets you in, stay there and minister to them. Whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. You had your chance. But I say to you that it'll be more tolerable in that day, the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that city. And then Jesus goes on and curses three of the, of the cities in that area where he had been ministering and doing miracles. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, down in verse 15, and you, Capernaum. Because he says, man, if the kind of miracles that you guys have seen had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. They were two Las Vegas-y kind of cities over on the Mediterranean coast. For it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And uh, you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So if people 
reject you as you're telling them about the Lord. They're not rejecting you. Don't take it personal. They're just rejecting Him. And they're rejecting God. And if, if they make that choice, it's okay. They, they got to hear. They had a chance to get the message. And so uh, now the 70 come back, and they're all excited. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, when he sent the 12 out, he gave them power to cast out demons. Um, with these guys, he didn't specifically say that, but they found out that they were able to um, cast out demons as well as preaching the gospel and no doubt seeing people healed of other things. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, referring to the time when Satan rebelled against God and was cast down from heaven to earth. Uh, you can read about that in Ezekiel 28. And he said, I saw that happen. So I'm not that impressed that demons are cast out. I saw their boss get trashed. And he said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. It doesn't mean that they were invincible, but, but that no power was greater than the power that they had. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But, he says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You know, don't make a big deal about it when you see a miracle or when God uses you in an amazing way or you see somebody healed or something like that. Of course God can do that. I mean, he's God. But what you, you shouldn't be celebrating when God uses you as much as you should be celebrating God because you get to spend eternity with him. I mean, okay, I will thank him for whatever he does, but... He, the biggest thing he's done for me is he's taking me to heaven. And so for that, that's worth rejoicing. And the Bible says that when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven are, are rejoicing. So that's what they love to hear, um, going to heaven. And uh, I heard uh, Michael Smith the other last Saturday night on the, on the radio speaking from Calvary, and he, he said, he talked about one time he was talking to John Corson, and Michael does a real good John Corson impersonation. I don't, but um, he said, John, how are you doing? And John thought a minute, and he goes, I'm going to heaven. And that's kind of the idea here. That's what you should be excited about. Your name is written in heaven. And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. And we don't know exactly what that means, but I'm sure it was incredible rejoicing, everything in him just overflowing. And he said, thank you, I thank you, Father. And by the way, there are people who have said that he was actually praising God speaking in tongues because when there are times when praying in tongues is called praying in the Spirit. Um, but probably not, or it would have said that. And it says what he said. So it was probably just that he was really filled with the Spirit. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He goes, God, I can't believe it. These disciples of mine, they're starting to get it. They're starting to see. They're, they're beginning to 
to get excited about you and about me, and they're ready. I think they can actually do some useful things. The, all the teaching is starting to pay off, and he was just stoked and going, God, I, it's so cool that a bunch of fishermen and, and losers are doing this and being used by you, and all the smart guys don't get it. And that shows that, God, it's you. And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, you know, God has chosen not many wise men, not many nobles, but he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And it tends to be that way in general. That God doesn't look around, okay, who's really smart that I could really use in a powerful way. Um, God likes to, God loves to use somebody where when he uses them, he, he goes, people go, that's amazing because there's nothing about the guy. It's, it has to be God. And Jesus loves doing it that way. At the last pastor's conference, I had to follow um, Bob Coy from Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Spoke right after him. And Bob, I mean, I love Bob and he's always really good. But this time he was great. He just hit it out of the park. He was hilarious. He was just, it was amazing. And you know, I thought, oh, great, now here I go. And Bob has 30,000 people in his church, one of the biggest churches in the country, and amazing thing that God's doing. Funny thing is about Bob, he's not, you know, a guy that you'd listen to him and think, wow, what a great orator. He sounds like Billy Graham, or he's, you know, what a wonderful education he has. And so when I got up there, I just said, you know, I feel kind of intimidated by Bob because of how God uses them. And it's a testimony of how God uses certain people. And I said, I'd love to compare SAT scores with them, but you know, when it comes to God using us, I feel like, man, I'm following Bob Coy. And God just does it that way. And Bob would be the first one to admit it. And you look at some of the guys that God has used amazingly just in the Calvary Chapel movement, you know, people like Raul Reese and others who you just go, God's doing an amazing thing on those guys, or Mike McIntosh and some of these guys. And other now other churches are starting to figure out that you don't need to be smart and have a full education in order to be used by God. And there's a whole lot of guys that God's using in that way. And again, Jesus loves that. He gets really excited. Now, there are a few smart guys that God uses too. Paul was one of them, definitely. Um, Luke was one, but God just gets really stoked when he uses people that no one would expect, and that's just what he is celebrating here. And he turned to his disciples, verse 23, and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And then he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. He says, a guy a certain, um, well, a lawyer was testing him and said, teacher, what will I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And this lawyer said, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, that here, it's a lawyer who is saying that, um, but uh, over in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 12, they, they were, a Pharisee was asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And this was Jesus' response. So maybe this lawyer had heard Jesus say that and knew that that was the answer, 
uh, you know, leave it up to a lawyer to figure out a way to cheat on the test. But at any rate, that's what he said. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to know, who do I really need to be nice to? How close of a neighbor is it? Like right next door? Do I have to be nice to the people across the street too? And Jesus told them a story. And he said, a guy went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and got ripped off by some thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side because you know, they wouldn't want to be defiled, thought maybe he was dead. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, they were disgusted by the Samaritans, but it was a Samaritan who came along and journeyed and came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, telling a story that showed a Samaritan in a good light wasn't real popular with Pharisees and lawyers. But he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to a, an inn and took care of him. And the next day when he departed, he got some money out, gave it to the innkeeper and said, here, this will take care of him. If he runs up a tab you know, larger than that, then I'll pay you when I come back. So Jesus said, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, uh, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. In other words, you go look for people who have needs and you love them. They are your neighbor. They become your neighbor when you learn to have compassion on them. And that's what Jesus was calling them to do. Now, Mary and Martha, and you're familiar with this story, but he went and entered a certain village, uh, which was Bethany. And a certain woman, a particular woman named Martha, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So when Jesus was teaching, she was, Mary was sitting there soaking it up. Uh, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Martha was distracted. Um, the word there, distracted with much serving, the word for distracted is, is a word that meant divided or partitioned. It was like you're cut up in a bunch of pieces. She was juggling a lot of stuff. She was like trying to take care of everything and um, serving a lot. And so she complained, make my sister help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried, the same word, um, you're divided, you're torn, um, you're being um, pulled around, you're, you're being tugged on from too many different directions and troubled about many things, but one thing is really necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the reminder, we're all familiar with this, but so often we spread ourselves so thin with good things. There was nothing wrong with serving. But if we're serving so much that we're being pulled in all directions and we're torn and we don't have time to really sit at Jesus' feet, then 
it becomes a distraction. It becomes something that actually messes us up. And the enemy of the best usually isn't bad. The enemy of best is almost always good. And you're doing something that's really good. It might be the way you do your job. It might be things that you're doing in serving the Lord or in serving the community or in taking care of yourself. It could be working out. It could, there are all sorts of things that can become something that takes away a chunk of your time that you could have spent more time quietly at the feet of Jesus. And I think we need to guard ourselves from becoming more like Martha and feeling like, well, look how much I got done and look how people are pleased with me, rather than to really spend that quality time with the Lord. Um, that's something that Jesus advocated. He went out and spent quality time with his Father. And if he needed to do it, we certainly need to do it. And it's a good reminder. Then in chapter 11, he came and, and uh, was praying in a certain place. That indicates that it was a place he would typically pray. And when he sees the Disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And he said, well, when you pray, say. And he gave this model prayer, which is basically the same prayer he gave on a couple different occasions, changing a few words. But our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many times have we prayed that, but we really don't want God's will to be done? A simple request, give us day by day our daily bread, not, not give us enough so that we have a nest egg, just every day feed us. And forgive us our sins, because we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Over in Matthew, Jesus said, for if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. That's a scary thought. Don't lead us into temptation. That really means lead us in a way so that we can make it through and around temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So just a simple prayer, interesting, nothing real fancy, and he didn't give a ton of instructions, and Jesus would pray sometimes all night, but he was just going, here's the little template. Now he's not saying you should pray this prayer literally exactly this way, and so often people say, well, it's vain repetition the way people are always praying the Lord's Prayer. I don't have a problem with people praying the Lord's Prayer. Just don't do it vainly. If you pray it, really mean it. Um, Jesus actually repeated it on more than one occasion, so he seemed okay with repeating it. So if you, if you like doing that, that's fine. And then he said to them, he started teaching them some more about prayer here, and he said, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. A friend of mine has come to me on a journey. I need some food to give him. And the guy inside goes, don't bother me. The kids are in bed. You know, I don't want to get up and give you anything. But I say to you, verse 8, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him um, as many as he needs. So he goes, even if a guy doesn't want to do it, if you're persistent, he'll do it. And then he says, so I say to you, ask. And the word there means keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, 
Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in teaching about prayer, he uses an example of a friend, and he goes, if they keep banging on your door, you're going to give it to them. And he said, so you need to be persistent. So when you ask, keep asking. When you seek, keep sinking. When you knock, keep knocking. Now, he isn't saying that God will just get so irritated that he will answer your prayers. But the point here seems to be, do you really want it? Are you asking as if you don't really care whether he does it or not? Because even if you want bread when you're hungry, you're going to be going, oh, come on, I want some bread. And it seems like God wants us to think about what we're praying, maybe modify our prayer requests at times, but he is blessed when we really pray fervently and persistently. And part of it is that that changes us when we do that. But part of it is that God sees our hearts and he's blessed when we treat him like he's God and, and we're not. So he says, just keep doing that. And notice how much more will your heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You can have everything that the Holy Spirit has for you if you ask. There's nothing that you have to do special in order to get the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, when you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. The Bible makes that really clear. So you don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit to come inside you. You just have to ask for him to save you, and that happens. But at the same time, you, it, it is wise, it'd be foolish not to, to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, as we sometimes call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to desire God to really work in us in a powerful way. And if he says that he'll do it, if you ask, it'd be kind of dumb to not ask. And see, in everything that we do, and in all of our prayers, what we want is to pray what the Holy Spirit has for us. And the most important thing we can pray for is that the Holy Spirit will come upon us with power, that we'll hear from him, that we will connect with him, that he will work in our lives and lead and guide us. And so he's saying, you know, persistently pray and know that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, God's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour his spirit out on you and Great things are going to happen in your life as you do that. Well, I guess I'm not going to make it through this chapter, am I? At least not do a very good job of it. So that's a good place for us to stop, actually, with, we'll beginning with verse 14. We'll pick that up next week. Um, but maybe some of you have been nervous about the Holy Spirit, or you're kind of you've seen weird, freaky stuff and everything, and and you, um, you, you have to be honest and go, I don't know that I've ever really asked, or at least it's been a long time since I've asked for the Holy Spirit to really come upon me, to really fill me, to speak to me, to lead and to guide, to comfort and soothe me and to do all the things that the Holy Spirit does. And um, if that's something that you haven't prayed, and even if you have prayed it, you can't pray it too much. It's something that we should be asking God to do all the time, to fill us with his spirit, to work in us afresh, because our tendency is to grow sour over time. 
Our tendency is to lose that childlike faith, that sense of wonder, that sense of joy and excitement at life, that sense of just going, this is great what God is doing. It just becomes old hat to us. And we can't afford to do that because we begin to lose a part of our soul when that happens. And you can feel it happening. You know when you're just going, I feel like I'm not myself anymore. I don't even know who I am. There's something inside of me that's kind of dying, and I'm just dying on the vine. I'm just hanging in there. I'm not doing anything bad, but I'm not having that sense of wonder at sitting at the feet of Jesus and just enjoying him and appreciating all that he's done for me. And so if, if you feel that God's telling you that it's time for you to pray that, just right now, just for, you know, a minute or so, um, just quiet your heart before the Lord and just no fancy way you have to ask it, just ask for him to fill you with, your, with his spirit. And then I'll close in prayer after that. Let's just pray. Lord, when we see the power of your Holy Spirit, we see what you are able to do through people like us. Um, it's, it's amazing, and you're amazing, God. The fact that our names are already written in the book of life in heaven, that you have a whole plan for us, and yet you've chosen to call us as laborers in your harvest, and you give us a chance to follow you, that's so, such a blessing, and we thank you. But God, we're sorry because we have to admit, sometimes we just go through the motions. Sometimes we just grow up too much and lose that childlike wonder at who you are and what you're doing. And so God, now please pour out your spirit on us. Fill us, lead and guide us. Lord, speak to us. And I pray that sometime during the rest of this week that something will happen in each of our lives that will amaze and inspire us. That we would be able to share with somebody else and say, you know what God did? Because I know, Lord, that's what will happen when you give us that power of the Spirit, that communion with you, that communication that comes personally from you. So, Lord, we make ourselves available to you, and we thank you for what you've done and for what you're going to do because you always answer that prayer. You said you do, and we believe that we have received that which you're going to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.